All right, faithful listeners, welcome back to Around with Stephen Cole. I am your host, Steve Yamada. Hi, everybody. This is T. Cole Newton. We're coming to you pre-recorded from 12 Mile Limit here in the heart of Mid-City. All right, all right. We've got two special guests on this week. Um, really excited. Uh, it was kind of cool. The, uh, the first episode of our podcast we put out there and, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you throw something out into the ether and you don't know how people are going to react. You know, you put a little bit of work into it. And I remember opening up my email one day and it was from uh, somebody who I really respect in this industry and said, hey, guys, I think you're on to something. Good job. Can't wait for future episodes. And that was uh, Mr. Neil Bodenheimer, the uh, the owner and uh, creator of Cure Company. Uh, and he's here with us today. So I want you to say hi, Neil. Thanks, Steve. Nice to It's nice to be here today. All right, and we have a second guest as well, too, uh, somebody I know very well because I live with him and he puts up with all of my garbage. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? How you doing, y'all? I'm Matt Lofink. I'm bartender over at Cure on Ferret Street. Right on, right on. So uh, we've got two boys from Cure in-house right now. Um, this is just further uh, further um, supporting the conspiracy theory that this is a podcast sponsored by Cure Company. <laughs> uh, we I had think, other guests on before, so I guess, you know. I think one of, the, one of the reasons that Cure has come up so much in these conversations that are frequently about bar culture in New Orleans is that it, it's very rare that you can point to a bar specifically as something that's genuinely important to the to the cultural capital of a city. And you can really look at Cure as the style of cocktail bar that it is, when it opened, where it opened, and you can really look at the cocktail scene in this city as as very much like pre-cure and post-cure. And that's that's a level of importance that you don't I don't think any other bar has that cachet in in our in our market, at the very least. I guess that's probably the timeline. Like, Paul Gustings was born in, like, the 1700s, and then, <laughs> and then Cure opened up. So that, I mean, there's, there's a wave of cocktail. But I think Tanique might have been... Because you, you worked Tonique, at Tanique, yeah, right? Yeah, and they, Tonique, were, they opened Tonique about... before us. Yeah, by about and, a year? Um, I don't remember exactly. It was either a year or less. But even Tanique, Tanique at least strives in their marketing... Uh, and and in their execution to be a more approachable, a more relaxed that, neighborhood vibe cocktail and that program. Was, and that was the initial the initial um, goal for the bar as well. For Cure so, or for Tonique? For Tonique. For Tonique. Uh, but and Cure was different. Cure was different. Um, you know, I helped uh, Evan and Ed at the time when they were partners um, put together Tonique um, from uh, from a drinks perspective, and I was also in the process of opening my own place, so there were certain things that. I was willing to share, and there were certain things that I wasn't. Cool. What was your um, what was the goal with opening Cure? Uh, you were in New York for a little while, is that correct? Yes, I was in New York, and um, and I was a bartender. And it's funny because the first thing I really opened Cure to have a place to bartend the way that I wanted to bartend in New Orleans, and the first thing I had to really do was to give up bartending. Um, <laughs> and you know, the, the it kind of starts with um, looking around the room and noticing that things aren't getting done. And saying, well, maybe I need to step off. And then it kind of ended when people were like, hey, I need money. I need a shift. And there's a lot of responsibility, as you know, that when you employ people to make sure that they're making money. And sometimes you have to put yourself second. Right on. Yeah. I always, I try to maintain a couple of shifts at 12 mile in, in the course of a week just so I can stay fresh. And because you really, you don't necessarily experience the bar the same way if you don't get behind it and work it that's absolutely true um but i also i mean i try to be i try to be last in line for good shifts with air quotes too because 
it's I I get all the money that goes into the I'm register. Sure, so I'm, I'm I, sure I, I, you, other people who just get the tips. Well, no, you get all the money once all the expenses come out. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> I at least get to count it once. <laughs> he gets all the money after he pays for the stuff I break throughout the week. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, um, you know, we've talked a lot about just, uh, well, a little bit, definitely with the first episode as well, is with Cure opening up, it definitely opened up in an area of town that was hit very hard from Katrina, um, you know, like... There was very few businesses on that stretch. What were the reasons for opening on Ferret Street at that time? I mean, there were a few things. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a long story, and I know we don't have a lot of time. But um, <laughs> it started off with my business partner Matthew Conkey had really been interested in Ferret Street even pre Katrina, and he looked at the, the where it was situated, and he also loved the building stock on the street, and he said. That he kept on saying, "Well, why don't we go over here?" And I'd be like, "You're crazy, man! This is this is impossible." And Ferret had been through a few kind of uh, attempted renaissance periods, uh, business renaissance, and it just never stuck. Um, I think Katrina was a little bit different because what you found is back in the neighborhood, there were a lot of people uh, that had development properties or um, rental, rental, rental properties. And so what happened after the storm is that you had all these properties that were people's fifth and sixth priorities to get up and running. Hmm. And so the main street was kind of a blank canvas because the neighborhood just really wasn't even, didn't really even exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And I know that's probably a little controversial, but it kind of gave the street a chance to reinvent itself in a new way because you just didn't have any existing, um, any existing culture there still. Now that, that changed over the years and as people started to move back, but at that moment, it was really kind of a blank canvas to be whatever people that were developing the street wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, as we looked around, we had limited resources. We knew that we, we knew the way that we wanted the bar to look. We knew what the offerings wanted, the, that we wanted it to have. And we knew that we didn't have the money to do it elsewhere. And owning the building was a big, was a big goal of ours. Mm-hmm. So we got back to Ferret. We keep on, kept on going back to Ferret. I actually had multiple friends of mine and family members that uh, attempted to have interventions with <laughs> us because they, they thought we were going to just go flat broke and lose all of our money. And frankly, that that was a real possibility and it could have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you guys were there in the early days mm-hmm. and the, the neighborhood was not nearly as safe as it is today. I actually, when I first moved to New Orleans, I was doing volunteer work full time and my team was situated in the Samuel J. Green Charter School, which is right around the corner from Ferret. So I spent a lot of time in that neighborhood before, uh, and this was, you know, again, three or four years before Cure was even a thing. And there was basically, there was the boxing gym, uh, there was a Domino's, there was a tuxedo store, and a little sort of favela-style Latin grocer. And that Friar. was basically it. Friar Tux as well, right? There was Friar Tux. That's Friar a, Tux. a bit down towards the other side of um, the other side of Napoleon, I guess. There was a little bit more activity closer to the universities. Mm-hmm. But on, on your side of Ferret, there was... The, and between, I guess, Louisiana and Napoleon, which is where the part that's seen the, the most dramatic turnaround, it was, I mean, mostly you know, boarded up buildings and the, the handful Yeah, it of, was. And there, there was actually one family that owned... Uh, two block faces of Ferret and they, mm. and they sold it all in most of it in one shot. Oh wow. And they held on for a long time. So that's why you've seen this big second spurt of growth on Ferret is so, because it was one family. You're trying to say they made just a ton of money. 
I, I think I, th- I think they did fine. I don't, <laughs> think, they, I don't think they made as much money. They, the, the price kept on going up. Yeah. So I don't think they ever made as much money as they as they hoped to. Mm. But uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know how much they ever hoped to. So I think that's an interesting kind of juxtaposition we can have here at this point, too. So Neil, building cure and everything. Matt, when did you get down to New Orleans? So I've been here uh, exactly two and a half years. Okay, right awesome. Now. So what was your perspective, or how did you view Ferret Street when you first came to town? It was or? actually funny. I lived on Ferret when I first moved there. Oh, really? And I used to see Neil walking in to work all the time, give him a little wave. And um, I would say in the past year alone, it's changed immensely. Yeah. And, um it was kind of more of like a cool little college and family neighborhood. And I just see a lot more people walking up and down it. Mm-hmm. And some days I think that's a great thing. Some days I think it's a bad thing because now, you know, what used to be a quaint little cute neighborhood is now very brightly lit with these big lights from all these new restaurants and places. Right. And um, one would even say some of it looks gaudy. But at the same time, those businesses are helping all the other businesses around it. Right. So it's kind of like um, give and take, I feel like. I, I feel like the street has lost a little beauty, mm-hmm. but it's gaining so much more at the same time. Yeah. I don't have any skin in the game when it comes down to it, so I feel like I can kind of shit talk a little bit something. <laughs> um, it's interesting seeing uh, uh, Ferret come up to me because um, I was here uh, going to school in uh, 2003, uh, so we would walk down to Friar Tux and we are very very um, vaguely familiar with the neighborhood uh, Dunbar's we'd go to to get food mm-hmm. and you know can't wait for the new Dunbar's to open that's really going to be Me really too. great <laughs> but um, the Domino's had been there for a long time but with the <laughs> advent of of some new fast food restaurants opening up there's this kind of this like thing that just like turned in me a little bit it's like it's like i don't need to see fast food restaurants on here like one of the things that i really appreciate about cure is like you've got hi-hat there you've got Ancor, their company burger open up which is a great like twist on like you know what fast food is but then to see like some chains with some very in my opinion mediocre food like popping up there it's like what the hell is happening right now like you know that's that's mm. that's a little bit far from me i don't know how you guys well, and I, well i mean i think that's what happens you know as we talk more about developing neighborhoods i think that's what happens is that there's always the way a neighborhood starts as it develops. And then there's always, as people start to realize it's appreciating, you have people that come in and they pay top dollar to get in. Mm. And if they need to get a high per square footage rent, mm-hmm. then ultimately they're going to turn to national chains. Right. Um, I, I mean, personally, I don't mind even saying this. I, I'm pretty displeased with the way that those were developed. Cool. Um, and listen, with Starbucks coming in on the corner. Oh, I didn't even know about where, that. Where, where Village Coffee wow. is, mm-hmm. it's there's there's more. No. So, and as a business owner, I, I find it really distressing that we're seeing all these national chains with, you know, coming into what was really a locally built street. Mm-hmm. However, as a property owner, I have to admit uh, it is it is comforting to know that we have long term, really highly accredited leaseholders. Yeah, no. yeah. You're looking that, that it's a double edged sword when you have those corporate chains because in some ways they they speak to the success of the, like that's the final arc of the neighborhood reviving because they they won't they're not speculating the same way an individual inspector or sorry an investor would they're not looking at a, a neighborhood and saying oh maybe this will be hot in 5 years they're looking at the numbers now and saying this is a solid easy decision we can make money here long term and that's the they're 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 playing it safe so it's it speaks well to how I mean a, a lot of the a lot of the neighborhoods that are sort of coming up, the, it's still 
it's still a bet. You know, it's still a gamble. And once once there's a Starbucks on the corner, it's like that's not a gamble anymore. They know it's done. Is it's, that what, is it's that what they're building across the street from Twelve Mile right now at Starbucks? I hope so. That'd be great. <laughs> no, I mean uh, it's, it's a it's a duplex. Yeah. So um, with Mid City as well, Cole, I live here. You know, you've invested in this neighborhood as well. Uh, with Five Hundred North Carrollton, like that entire suite of complexes opening where they'll hold. Uh, Home Depot used to be. Mm. What are your feelings on, on that area opening up? I think it's good for the city to have that kind of big box retail still. I think it's valuable. People will seek out those deals. And if they have to go to the West Bank or they have to go to Metairie to find something like a Marshalls or a Petco, um, they'll do that. So having those options within Orleans Parish, I think is valuable. I think they're neighborhoods that can sustain that. I don't think Carrollton has, um, so much cultural capital that a ton is lost. Mm. It does seem a little tone deaf sometimes. The the things that go in. It's uh, the not the one sort of the Home Depot turning into the Marshalls and the Petco. Um, but I, I mean, partly because the Petco is basically across the street from Jefferson Feed and Pet Supply. Correct. They put in a pie way across the street from uh, a smaller locally owned Chinese restaurant. They put in a Five Guys across. Actually, there wasn't a burger truck. They put in a. Uh, uh, Felipe's across the street from a Wands, and they put in a Win Dixie across the street from a Rouse's. It's like, why are you, you're just doubling down on all of these services that already exist here? And I guess that's, again, it's a, it's when corporations move into an area, they're, they're, they're making safe bets. Right. And so knowing that these, this neighborhood can sustain the style of business, oh, let's put in another one of those. But it's like, oh, here are all the national chain, or at least well-established regional chain versions of all these things that have proven to be successful on this stretch. And it seems a little, I will Awkward. say, as a longtime um, resident of New Orleans, you know when I grew up here, it was you you had to, it was a foregone conclusion that you had to go to Metairie to go to a national chain, mm-hmm. and maybe there were a few downtown, but it was you know mostly you were going to Metairie, and I love the idea of being able to keep that that tax revenue and keep the businesses in Orleans Parish because a lot of these big box stores and national chains they just stayed away from mm-hmm. from New Orleans proper. Alrighty, um, so we were going to be discussing a little bit, having Neil in here, uh, the topic that really kind of jumped into our minds or something we wanted to hear about was um, how your business has to develop depending on how clients' expectations change, how neighborhood expectations change. We talk about the evolution and development a lot here in New Orleans. I think that definitely also applies to consumers as well. And when my roommate Matt uh, expressed some interest in joining us as well, um, I was interested to hear his take on it as well as how a bartender views that. Because, you know, in the last couple of years, especially, uh, our, our clientele's cocktail consumers, like, you know, everybody has been armed with like a little bit of knowledge. And that is, I think, towards our benefit and a little bit to like our harm as bartenders as well, too. It's like, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic to kind of have to deal with. So, uh, let's, uh, let's start off with Neil. Um, could you think of any pertinent, uh, changes that you've had to make as a business owner to kind of address um, you know, he's, he's laughing right now. So, um, I mean, I think we make changes almost weekly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's what it feels like. And I, you know, I don't think, I think that's the nature of business is you don't, it's not, there's no, to, to quote Ron Popeil, there's no setting it and forgetting it. You know, you have to, you have to really constantly tweak your business. And mm-hmm. that, that doesn't mean the big things. Sometimes mm-hmm. the big things have to get tweaked, but, um, you know, to to me, it's it's a constant it's a constant shell game, and you're trying to figure out how to how to best um, 
you know, just how to best figure out how to, how to, how to serve your guests. Right. Um, and sometimes it's things that you haven't thought about for years. Sometimes you open up a menu and you say, God, why do we do it like this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you, and you just open up this, this can of worms and you get into it. But ideally it's to make your product better and to make your guest experience better and, mm-hmm. and to make it easier for a guest when they, when they come in to what, enjoy themselves. Uh, what specific practice, just a couple. What, what's, I think I'm trying to think of things that cure used to do that they that you don't do anymore uh, i think the a dress code there, there used to be a dress code now there isn't there used um, to be and a, do, you, do you still have an apprenticeship program because i remember that was a big feature early on and that it's but it, then so some of the apprentices we, sort of just moved up to we don't and we do okay so, <laughs> well i would like uh, so we let's, don't let's so talk about the apprentice have, program first okay and then, so but, we do have an apprentice program still okay um and at cure we've never had a handbook on how you on how you bartend mm-hmm. and the reason why is because when I worked for, for larger restaurant and bar groups, I would, you would always get a handbook. And I remembered that there, most people didn't read them. Mm. And when you did, there's nothing to say that that's the way that everybody learns. I've, for most of my life, I've struggled with, with a learning disability. So I'm very keen to how people learn. So what I realized is that people learn by doing. And unless someone can come back behind that bar, and learn from the people that work around them and learn from the team environment how things are done at Cure, but also how things, how we would like to see things done. And it gives, it gives them real, real, a really steep learning curve. And it doesn't, doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. And we've had some, we've had some people wash out where, where it's just, I can't, I can't explain. And maybe those are people that need, that need a, a book. But I also think that, you can't experience is the one thing that you can't teach and you have to get people reps. Mm-hmm. So that's why the apprentice program still exists. And you end your apprentice program when your coworkers say you're ready. Cool. So Matt, you, you went through this apprenticeship. I program. did indeed. Yeah. All right on. Tell us about your experiences going through this. Um, I expected it to be a lot worse. I, I heard, <laughs> I heard all these rumors about these mean guys that worked at Cure and, you know, Neil Bodenheimer throwing glassware into the ice well and being I've like, clean that, that up. That. <laughs> really? But, um, I was, I, I kind of felt lucky for the because, show. um, <laughs> I, I kind of knew everybody a little bit from working at Belloc for a short period of time mm-hmm. and I felt a little bit more comfortable t- going to them and talking to them saying, you know, I'm not just some new guy off the street that they never met. You know, they maybe shook my hand once and say, how you doing? So I did feel a little more comfortable going in. However, I've always enjoyed um, the start of something new, uh, whether it be consulting or bartending or whatever it's been. When it's a new job, it, it kind of like has this weird, fun passion to it. Mm-hmm. And I always look for that in both employees and apprentices, especially at Cure. Mm-hmm. You have to have the want I mean, you can, you could read to your blue in the face, but if, when you get behind that bar and you don't want to learn and you don't want to be able to deal with a customer who wants to ask about the 15 whiskeys we have or whatever, I mean, the want is, is most important. Um, so I had the want mm-hmm. and uh, Neil saw it and Braden saw it and Ryan saw it. And ultimately they made my life easier even when I screwed up because mm-hmm. they're like, this kid wants to be here. This kid wants to learn. Um, so I didn't mind fairly quickly if, if I remember I was about three, four months mm-hmm. where, um, it's quick. other people, not Nick Jarrett quick, not but. Nick Jarrett quick. <laughs> Nick Jarrett was maybe three days. I'm not sure. <laughs> Nick Jarrett was a month, but, and James Ives, James Ives was two months. Um, 
it, but it depends. Everybody has different has different skill level, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, if you guys come in off the street, it's going to take you guys a month because you're going to work. <laughs> no, you, I mean you're going to work two, <laughs> what, two two shifts a week. You know, you're going to work ten shifts. Mm-hmm. You don't get training. You start. You start. You, you start. And you apprentice. It's basically our training program. Mm-hmm. And for some people, the training program extends for a year. If you've never picked up a spoon, yeah, it's going to take you a fucking year. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. And but if you have experience, it's not going to take you very long. Right. Um, how do you guys feel at this point? This is a good question for you as well, Cole, because I think um, one of the things, and to just be blunt, there's probably a better way to put this, but I feel there's a bartender ego floating around there right now. Like bartenders are developing an ego and kind of their own uh, sense of self a little bit before they kind of like, you know, develop a full package of bartending skills as well. Um, I think the major aspect of that is customer service, like being able to interact with people appropriately. And I think some of those are technical issues as well too it's just kind of like you know i mean i could talk about that for hours, for hours. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, hours, you guys don't want to hear my thoughts on that we don't uh, we don't want to hear thoughts on I'll that. Just say, for for myself like the first year i was really bartending full-time and didn't have it wasn't while i was in college i wasn't doing something else i was that was probably when i had the highest estimation of my own abilities as a bartender was the first year i was doing it and oh, then yeah. every it was sort of towards the end of that year i started looking around i was like wait a second everyone else working at this is when i was a commander so like a lot there's a lot of people here who have a lot more experience than me i should i should be asking questions i should i shouldn't just act like i know everything but it's been 24 25 years old at the time so it's sort of when i was just growing up generally but i've never had a higher estimation of my own abilities than when i was very very new it's kind of one of those weird things when i first got into cocktail bartending which was after a long time of corporate bartending you know i was making classic cocktails and i would have people say like oh you're the best bartender i've ever had before you know and i think i took that to heart like i actually thought i was the best bartender they ever had before but it's kind of one of those things where it's like just running into flirtatious people it's like you tell that to everybody (laughs) you tell them that but it really is the trajectory of every bartender Mm -hmm. I, i can tell you after training a lot of bartenders that everybody goes through that experience Mm -hmm. i went through it Everybody sitting at this table, I guarantee you, has gone through it. Mm-hmm. And you you learn this new skill. And then you get proficient at the new skill. And then you meet somebody or you have an experience where you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't know shit. Yeah. And then it changes from, for, you know, from, from there forth. You kind of, you know, ideally that's when the ego drops away mm. as much as it can. And you start to focus on, on learning the work for real. Mm-hmm. Or not, right? Or not. So that guy's an asshole. I'm going to keep doing it my way. What about you, Matt? Uh, your experiences like working along, among, amongst that phenomenon? Um, I mean, for me personally, it always kind of like twists my insides and makes me sick when I hear uh, customers spoken down to. Um, mm. We make $2 an hour for the most part. Um, most bars in the city pay that wage. Um, my tips and their tips reflect on quality of service Mm -hmm. so if someone speaks down to a guest that's me not being able to pay rent you know that's me going to mcdonald's for lunch versus a nice restaurant for lunch Mm -hmm. you know and customer service as a bartender to me is the most important thing Mm -hmm. i love cocktails i love making them just as much as every other bartender in the city but at the end of the day i'm here to serve people right they come to me not for a drink i have regulars that see me three hours every day they drink beers and shots at cure because they just want to talk to me. They want to hear about my day. I want to hear about theirs. Um, there should be no ego involved. But for some reason, these people think that they can make this really cool drink. You know, they made it. 
now they don't have to talk to the guests. They can I think, move on. I think we can sort of tie that back around to talking a bit about sort of the, the culture of Cure because I like, I, I really respect a lot of, a lot of the higher end bars and Cure has arguably got the most sort of sophisticated cocktail program in the city still. I and mean, it was, it was sort of, it was there immediately when it opened. And I don't think anyone has really risen to challenge that status as, as of right now, at least. Um, but it doesn't have that same kind of, a bit of a culture of exclusivity that you see at high end sort of speakeasy cocktail bars in other major markets where the guests are really, um, sort of expected to get in line with what the institution deems important instead of the other way around. But I don't know that that was always the case at Cure or whether or not it was always, uh, whether, whether that sort of evolved over time. Because I remember you can look at the, the dress code as being dress in, code involved in that, the style of cocktails that are being served. I remember when you first opened, there was, there were zero sours on the list. It was all stirred yeah. bittersweet cocktails or, um, putting on the menu something like, and I, I think this is something that you used to have that you don't need more also is, uh, putting on the menu, um, our cocktails are all handcrafted. Please allow extra time to prepare. And those sort of trying to, uh, can you speak to some of the, some of the institutional changes that you've made over time to become a more accessible, sort of approachable program? Well, I think that's growth, personal and, and, and business growth. I mean, I think, you know, we started off in, you know, you have an idea and you're trying to execute it. And frankly, in the, in the beginning, we had our times where we executed it pretty well. And then we had times where we executed it pretty badly. Um, I think that, you know, the dress code in the beginning, there, there was, we had a lot of discussions. We had, we had weekly meetings in the beginning of Cure where we would talk about everything from dress code to cocktails, everything. And it was, we decided that we wanted to do a dress code. Um, part of the reason was because we had Friar Tux down the street and we were trying to keep the kids out and we didn't want to become a kid bar. Mm-hmm. And we pissed off a lot of people along the way. <laughs> and, but it was also because we all, we, we had, a, we had a door person. The neighborhood was dangerous and we felt like we, we needed the door person to make sure that they could tell someone no if they thought someone was up to good, up to no good. But we had, but we applied it evenly. And, uh, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I still believe that if you go to a nice bar, you shouldn't wear shorts. <laughs> or a hat. I think but, it might, that might be a little different in the deep south yeah, just because yeah. of the, uh, but, climate, but, 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 but I, I do, but I don't think it's my position to dictate that anymore. And I felt strongly about it. And I think that was, uh, I think that was youth. I think that was bluster. And I think that I, uh, in general, I, I, I do regret it. Hmm. Um, but we, over time, we paid a doorman for a long time. And we realized that we were paying way too many resources for someone who wasn't enhancing the guest experience enough. And we took those resources and we moved them in the room. And we got rid of our dress code when the doorman went. Okay. okay. How did you reapply that to uh, enhance the guest experience, would you say? Well, we started off with a floor manager. Um, and we kind of changed that. We, we realized that really what we needed was, as, as I started kind of pulling out to other projects, um, that we needed a general manager. We needed someone to do... I was too busy trying to augment my job, and I realized that I had to replace my job. Hmm. And that's when that, that's when Turk became GM, and part of the resources from the door helped to pay for that. Okay, awesome. I think the only other thing that I, I wanted to touch on, and this is kind of all tied together in that, uh, is 
and this is a bit of a loaded term, but we're talking uh, talking about uh, gentrification. That both of us have opened bars in neighborhoods that were that most people perceived as being particularly dangerous at the time when we opened the bars in them, and then the neighborhoods have started to change, and they look more like. Now they look, both of our neighborhoods, both of our bars, the, the neighborhood has started to look more like the demographic that comes to the bar that we own in that neighborhood. And of course, I mean, gentrification is a loaded term because it makes it sound like there isn't anything good that comes of it. It's, it's really about economic progress, but it leaves certain people behind, people who have been in the neighborhood for a long time. But the opposite of gentrification is just continued stagnation and decline. So there's, do you, but my guess, my question is, cause I, I still struggle with all of these issues and I don't have a good answer. On it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, do you ever, do you ever feel there, do you ever feel sort of, responsible for the changing landscape leaving people behind that have historically I do are being priced out of this community for example I do um, and that's very real pressure um, but I try and think about the good that we've done as well and I know that you know without um, without destruction there can't be growth and that's like the old the old what uh, is it Shiva N- neighborhoods of um evolve they uh they ebb and they flow they develop and they decay and that is just the nature of a city it's what's happened in new orleans probably five times mm-hmm. if you look around the city neighborhoods have come up come down they come back up uh and i think that's in any urban landscape that's just what happens um i would like to believe that development does more good than bad i think that when you have when you bring money to a neighborhood the people who own in that neighborhood, when they when they take their out, they get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know I know Mr. Bean across the street from us, who's had Beans Farmerware since the '80s. His building is, I think, his quality of life is probably a little worse because of the noise in the street. But in a lot of ways, it's better because the about three months before we started construction on Cure, there was a shooting at the at the telephone pole on upper line five feet from our five feet from the corner. So would you take noise or would you take shootings? And at some point when Mr. Bean decides to retire, he'll probably sell his building and he'll probably make a fortune. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how you put a value judgment on it because I think you can see both sides of it, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I think there's a lot of good that comes from it. And there's certainly is, so, you know, there's some bad things from people that are displaced. Sure. Um, so Cole touched on it a little bit as well. And I, I'd like to hear a little bit about it. I think this kind of involves Matt as well becoming a Cure bartender. I think, you know, there's almost like there's different generations of people who've worked at Cure at this point. You know, the first wave of people working, you know, uh, Max and Rhiannon and Kirk and all those cats and everything like that. Um, maybe like, you know, this first wave of bartenders and then like, you know, you've got people coming up. And it, it's this weird thing. I, I'm convinced that generations of bartenders, it's just... Uh, the generations are smaller and smaller. Like I think every two years you've got a new generation like popping up of bartenders who you know bring so much to the table. Um, so tell me about um, how cocktails have changed at Cure. Um, so I think you guys brought up a good point in the beginning. Um, we did have a lot of kind of heady, stirred stirred drinks. I, I love them too. I still love some of those original cocktails. And, and, and I think, but I think that gets back to youth and what we talked about earlier is I think sometimes um, part of this, part of the ego 
is putting things that you want to see on a menu versus what your guests would like to see and maybe meeting in the middle. And I think that inherently when you open a restaurant or a bar, you're, you are saying this is what I think is good. Mm-hmm. And you are making a statement in that way. But your ultimate job is to make people happy. And I think that that was kind of hubris. And I think that we didn't know exactly how to run the bar that Cure would, 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 would eventually be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we got better at it over time. And I think we got better at taking care of our guests over time. But in the, in, in the beginning, in a, particularly in an emerging cocktail market, there was great cocktail culture, a history of great cocktail culture and preservation, but the craft cocktail movement hadn't really taken a stronghold here. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, there was a lot of give and take between our guests. There were a lot of people that were uncomfortable with what we were doing. And there were a lot of ways there probably should have been uncomfortable with what we were doing. Um, we didn't have uh, some of the iconic brands that people were used to because we wanted to take people out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So it, it was, in some ways, it was a conscious decision. In some ways, there were a lot of mistakes that were made. And that's, I think, over time, you, you get better at running a business, ideally. I mean, I'm sure 12 Mile Lemon is better today than when it opened. Oh, well, <laughs> we opened, with, we had sort of a different track for like, when we opened, I probably had eight bottles on the back bar. And the, but at any time, <laughs> I'm looking at the back yeah, bar. Right it's now. a little cluttered yeah. now. Um, and, uh, but every, every time someone would come in and ask for a product we didn't have, I would say, Oh, I'm sorry we don't have that, but we'll have it for you tomorrow if you come back. And that was sort of, <laughs> it was, that was sort of how we built out our inventory was just speci- responding to very specific demands. Um, but yeah, things, things definitely evolve over time. Well, and I think I mean, it, 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 the cocktail scene, being where it was when Cure opened, it was right around the time I was leaving Commander's Palace. And I remember during my tenure at Commander's Palace, all the, the bar manager that had taken over the program while I was there had slowly phased out every bittersweet stirred cocktail in favor of a new sour. So by the time I left, like there wasn't a Sazerac on the menu anymore. There wasn't a Stinger on the menu anymore. Everything that was left on the menu had citrus juice in it. And it basically, you know, tasted like essentially 13 variations on the same drink. And so there was definitely room here for a more diverse cocktail program. And, so. and there is that, that, that give and take between what guests want and where you're pro- in the, in the authenticity of your program. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why you have to meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. You have to make, the idea is to make everybody happy along the way. And you also have changes in staff and changes in palates. Right. And ideally what happens is that as people come and go, you get listen, there, 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 there's an old saying that I, that I can't stand that says, Everybody's replaceable, right? How many times have you guys heard that in the restaurant business? Mm-hmm. Uh, every job I've ever worked at. <laughs> but Cole hasn't said it to me yet. But I, I just I've think it a lot. I never say it. But, <laughs> but the truth is, is that everybody's not replaceable, and positions are replaceable, but people are not, right? right? Mm-hmm. Because everybody is an individual. They have their strengths. They have their weaknesses. So mm-hmm. when one person goes, they bring a certain skill set with them. May, may be gone forever. May not. Mm-hmm. And then when another person comes, they bring a different. And that, with that, the personality of the offerings in the bar changes. Right on. Matt, what have you brought? When you brought, came into Cure, what did you bring that was new to the table? So actually, um, I did genuinely think a lot about it. And I did actually go around the city and kind of ask my bartender friends like Steve and you know everybody who worked everywhere, hey, what do you think of Cure? What do you not like about it? And if I could do something about that to change it, I would. So some people would be like, I want to go and I just want to have a lemon drop. And that's what I like to drink. And I want that. I'm like, cool. I work Monday, Friday, Saturday. Come see me. 
my name is Matt. And um, if you follow me on Instagram and whatnot, you see I do take a lot of user-friendly cocktail photos, Cosmos, you know, Ramos Gin Fizzes. Uh, people love that. And the reason I do it is to say, I'm here and I'm willing to make this. You don't have to change your order just because you're at Cure. You can have whatever you'd like. And um, I just genuinely believe that the bar is an experience. And, you know, we do make amazing cocktails. And it is for you. But, hey, if you want a nice daiquiri to crush right before you try one of our new spring cocktails, then I'm going to make that for you. I'm not going to complain a little bit. Because, ultimately, my job is to make sure your day gets better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I think people think that Cure, that we that we dying for you to drink the cocktails of the, you know, the, the seasonal cocktails. I don't give a fuck what you drink. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I really want you to drink what, what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that, that really is like the, the point of the service industry, right? Mm-hmm. Like the last thing I want to do is serve someone a cocktail they don't like mm-hmm. because then they're never fucking coming back, right? Right. So it's like, <laughs> they, they drink half of it. They say, thanks yeah. a lot. They leave yeah. 18%. And that's like <laughs> the best thing as a bartender that you can do when you sit down at cocktails, you'd be like, listen, you're not going to offend me. Don't worry about it. If you're not into this cocktail, give it back to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll get you something new. Because honestly, it's more damaging for someone not to like a cocktail in your bar than it is for them to, to be all into what you're doing. It offends me more now that like, I feel that like a lot of our customers are so afraid to say something's going wrong because of Yelp, because like there's this stigma that's been put out there by BuzzFeed and all these listicles about 10 things that your bartender should never hear you say. And it's like, fuck you, dude, you're paying my rent. <laughs> it's like, say whatever you want to say, as yeah. long as it's not completely offensive to like the rest of my clientele and me. But like, it, it offends me more now when somebody's drinking a drink and I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a reputation here at, at, at 12 mile. Um, where people come in and say, just make me something weird or something like that. It's like, man, I can, I can accommodate for that. Um, but like halfway through, I'm like, okay, this is weird. I think it's a balanced cocktail. It really might not actually even be that. If you don't like it, I, I will pay for it. I will get you something you want to drink. Um, and like, you know, there's definitely been a couple of times where I think it's like, oh, it's fine. You know, it's not, it's not like it's exactly great, but you said, tell me, just give me, give me honest feedback on this. I'm one to make sure you're having the best experience possible. Yeah. There, there is no, there is never a question. If some, if ne- there's never been an argument. Uh, at least I hope not because, with it, cause that's <laughs> the way it's designed. Never an argument. If someone sends back a cocktail at Curie, we take it back. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. So there's no discussion because we want someone to enjoy their cocktail. Period. That's the only thing we care about. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, we're running a little bit short on time. We're going to run a little bit over, obviously, from what we said we were going to be. We can't stick to structures on this show. But um, I would really like to hear from each of us real quick um, just one really great cure moment that that jumps out. I've I've got a lot of a lot of really great sensory moments and like just developmental moments as a bartender, like at at Cure. Um, I used to. I, I don't know if you know this, Neil. I was trying to get a job there a long time ago. Yeah, walking yeah around with everybody like, but me. Everybody. <laughs> well, you were scary. That's that's the thing. You were just you were Neil. So I, you I were... heard that, and then and I was like, well, Steve never asked me. <laughs> Damn it, time machine. Um, but um, so I'll, I'll lead off. Uh, one of my favorite moments at Cure. So I used to go in every single 
once a week, uh, pretty much, just so I could learn, so I could watch people. My favorite bartender, uh, off of one of the original bartenders was, was Max, who's up in New York now. I just, I, I, He's I think he, bartender. he understood my palate perfectly. And at that time, like, um, I was really into, like, you know, more subtly smoky things, a lot of brown and sturds, and he's the person I could walk into that bar, and he could say, just put a drink down in front of me. And it would never be the same drink, but it would never be too far off the mark or something like that. And, like, you know, was there to listen and to explain to me why a drink tasted that way. So he... um had to move back to New York City, and I remember his last shift, and it was like a big bummer and everything like that, but the next day I came in, and it was, or the next time I came in, it was his regularly scheduled shift, and Kirk was working there, and like, I didn't, I didn't even know who Kirk was, or like, what his involvement with the project was, but, uh, the first thing Kirk said to me was, he's like, hey, I know that Max has been your bartender for a while, um, if you talk to me for a little bit, um, I hope that I can make drinks that are just as good as his drinks right now, which is like a crazy thing looking now at like, Kirk just being like, like, I I want to make drinks for you that I think you think are good. It's like the guy makes amazing drinks. Like I'm not, I shouldn't be the judge on like what his drinks are, but like it really made me feel at home. And like, you know, in one of those instances where like, you know, this bar is not just about the bartender. It's also about like, you know, the kind of service and experience we're providing. So that's one of my favorite cure memories. Well, and Kirk's standard of service is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. you know, it was, you know, uh, I, I feel, and I, I would say this about everybody that we've worked with, you know, cures it i feel better for having worked with with kirk over over all these years and with um you know really with every with every bartender that's coming i've always learned something from everybody Mm -hmm. and you know you can you can pinpoint everybody and see where their impact is yeah right on so cool so what about you matt like are uh, you talking more of a a consumer nope or it can be anything fun like whatever your your one a fun cure memory that jumps out at you. i mean there's there's a lot and i'm not just saying that because my owner's right here but uh it, <laughs> it's um I've, I'm, I've heard you talk about working here at 12 mile and i get the same kind of like special feeling from you when you talk about it as when i talk about working at cure so there are, there are a lot of moments um I would have to say probably the most special for me is before I started working for the company and I actually physically bumped into Kirkus Stopenhall and spilled a little bit of his drink. And I didn't know who he was. <laughs> and I was like, where are you fucking walking guy? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a Friday night. It was busy. I just got done work myself over at the Bombay club and, and I bumped into him and he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm sorry. I spilled your drink. Like, can I buy you a shot or something? Like, I feel bad. Like where I'm from. You know, and Kirk was so nice about it. And he's like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. I, you know, this is, you know, don't worry about it. Little did I know he was testing an apprentice. So drink didn't matter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, no, 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 I'll feel bad for the rest of the night. Like, let me buy you a shot. And he goes, you want to do a shot? Okay, we'll do a shot. And I'm like, all right, it's going to take me about 10 minutes. Busy. Like, I'll find you. And he's like, ah, screw that. Walks behind the bar, takes a bottle of rum and two glasses and pours me a shot. And I'm like, who the shit are you? <laughs> and he's like, I'm Kirk. I'm one of the owners. I'm like, whoa, my God. I was like, I love your bar. I hang out here all the time. I live, you know, right up the street. And um, we just talked. Mm-hmm. You know, this wasn't a busy Friday night where this guy could have been a billion places talking to a billion people. And he's talking to a stranger for over an hour. And ultimately, it landed me a job at Belloc, mm-hmm. which is, it wasn't because of anything other than he felt a genuine connection with me. And if... Anybody who has met Kirk knows that he's just an outstanding person and a really sweet, nice guy. And, you know, he'd get along with anybody. Mm-hmm. But at that moment in time, it was like huge for me to make this new friend in a new city who gave me a job that it was my dream job at the time. So 
that moment is very special to me. Awesome. All right, what you got, Cole? I have some uh, some very fond and fairly fuzzy memories. I had a I had an ex who worked at Cure for a few months very early on, and so I, would, I worked at a restaurant, and I would get out of work and then go see her, and then just kind of hang out during closing. And yeah, right. <laughs> it was like, it was, you know, I remember her and you and Max and Ricky and Danny and a bunch of people who've gone on to amazing things elsewhere, but just sort of being part of that, those conversations about the, about what was working, what wasn't the direction the bar was taking. Um, just a, a bit as a fly on the wall and just sort of like nosing around where I had no business because I was curious about how that bar like this was supposed to operate. And so being, being a bit, just a just a touch behind the scenes there i remember just those were those were good times those were great conversations and uh, it it felt like it felt important and it still does so well congrats. It, it, it just it just lets you know how 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 little we really knew what we were doing <laughs> <laughs> it did as i mean as someone who at the time aspired to open my own bar one day i didn't kind of i didn't think i realized at the time how close i actually was to that um, but it, it sort of reinforced the idea that it demystified the process a little mm-hmm. bit, that this, it wasn't just like, Hey, we've got this thing and here it is. And it's amazing. It's like, no, this is a process. We're learning as we go. Um, and you know, I, I, it, it helped give me the confidence to do this myself. Right on. All right. Neil, what awesome. you got for us? Um, yeah, so, favorite so memory of <laughs> you know, there, I, I, I do. And I, you know, honestly, I get, I have these like moments of marvel. I'm sure you have them as well, where you're like, Look at this. You know, I have, I have all the time. Um, but, you know, Cure was my dream. It took me five years to open. And, um, and it was, and I, I still am like very, very connected to it. And I, uh, you know, like, I guess the five year anniversary for me was, was, was really meaningful. Mm. Um, because we were able to bring as many bartenders as we could from, from the first five years in. And it really gave me a sense of family, um, of cure. And then we just raged in a way, in a way that, that I'm not, uh, fully comfortable as I like look back at some of the things that happened at the end of the night. I'm like, how did there's, there, there's a story with Braden in the oven. <laughs> he, he knocked the, he got caught on the oven and the oven fell on him and all the plates <laughs> fell on him. And I, and I, uh, allegedly, cause it was a little fuzzy, I pointed at him and I laughed. <laughs> and, uh, and. No, no, no regard for insurance. Yeah, exactly. It was like that, like, purist, not, not a business owner, just, just a, just a witness. Oh, God. And, um, and, I think the interesting part is that not not many people remember how the oven fell until until the next day, mm-hmm. uh, until about at least twenty four hours after. It was it was one of those nights, and I and I, I wouldn't say that that it's great to have that kind of excess, but um, it was it it felt justified that night, and, and and we had a good time, and it was definitely I think that's the thing that I appreciate most about what Cure has become has become a family. Well, I'm surprised you didn't say rematch. You know, whenever he came in and destroyed your bar. No, that is, I, I, I have, I have uh, repressed that. <laughs> so forever on Hey Bartender, the movie, you could see highlights. I guess I, I, that's why I won't watch the movie. <laughs> All righty, guys. Well, we've gone pretty far over right now, um, but with two fantastic guests like this, it's uh, not hard to do. Um, once again, uh, let's uh, go ahead and just recap real quick. We've got Malerfink and Neil Bodenheimer. Fantastic. I'm Steve Yamada. I'm T. Cole Newton. Thanks a lot for listening, y'all, and we'll catch you next time.